Well, it is really great to have you here and have more freedom than we have had for a long time. That's why we started the service out with a doxology. And for all of those, uh, all of you who think that we handled this situation pretty well, we say, you're welcome. And for those who think we did a very poor job, we say, I'm sorry. And you get to choose which one it is. But all that's behind us now. We pray. <laughs> and uh, there are still needs, obviously. People still very sick. Cautions we need to take. But praise God for progress. And uh, we will go forward and follow his hand in leading in all we do. The modern worker rolls out of bed with a groan and reaches to turn off their alarm clock and then makes ready for the day. But that was not the case in the late 1800s in, in the industrial era, especially in the UK, where workers actually relied on a different method. Oh, they, they had alarm clocks, but they were quite primitive, relatively expensive, and very unreliable. So in turn, they had human alarm clocks like Mary Ann Smith. Uh, this is a great picture of Mary who for six pence a week would walk the streets of East London with a pea shooter. <laughs> and uh, she would use that to wrap with dry peas, wrap upon the windows. And uh, she woke up everyone from miners to the mayor. And she was extremely popular. But I have some questions. How many window panes did she break? Right? Or, or how many peas do you get for sixpence? Uh, some people are hard to wake up. And, uh, you know, there's a limit to the peas that she had in her pocket. So, I don't know, you get ten peas for a sixpence, and if you want any more, that's a sixpence and a tuppence or something. Uh, but she did this faithfully, and uh, everyone kind of needs a wake-up call now and then. That's exactly what's happening now when we come to chapter 2 in the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews, and we have already said that his writing is masterful. He is um, filled with Old Testament scriptures. He knows them well. The writing in the Greek, I'm told, is the best there is when it comes to just pure style. And his preaching approach is exemplary. For he does what preachers should do, give careful exposition of the Word of God and then faithful exhortation or application of the truth that has just been discovered. After all, the writer of Hebrews, and we don't know exactly who it is, but the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 13 and verse 22, um, I urge you to put up with my brief word of exhortation. So he recognized that there aren't always ears to hear. And in saying brief, I wonder if he was being a bit facetious uh, because that's what preachers often do. I have a short sermon today and then 50 minutes later they, they crawl to a conclusion. But it's interesting, this portion of scripture is filled with several warning passages. There are about six or seven, depending on how you count them. And they're interspersed after clear expositions of biblical truth. They grow in their intensity 
from first of all warning about drifting away to ultimately in chapter 12 the warning of defying and outright rejecting the Lord of glory. They're not heartless. They're, he's not angry, but they are loving and compassionate appeals to come back to the Lord. It was Charles Spurgeon who once said, God will not allow his children to sin successfully. Isn't that a great quote? <laughs> you can't get away with your sin when God the Father loves you too much to let you do that. He's coming after you, just like any parent would who loves their child. So, we notice chapter 2, verse 1. And the word therefore always takes us back, doesn't it? That word is used multiple times. I think, depending on your English translation, about 16 times. And what it simply means is that the application is arising from a previous argument or conclusion. And what we've already noted in chapter 1 is simply this. Jesus is better than the prophets in bringing to us the word of God. And Jesus is higher than the angels because he is God. Therefore, based on that clear truth, here is my exhortation, the writer says. It's not a feverish appeal for frantic activity. It is a reasonable exhortation based on clear understanding of biblical truth. So as we look at this verse, notice it starts out with saying, we must pay. A couple of interesting points about that. The whole idea is that it's our responsibility, and he's including himself with his auditors or his hearers. He's one of them. He's speaking to believers. He's addressing those who know the gospel and say they believe the gospel, including himself. And notice the necessity. We must. It's not optional. For to do nothing brings disaster. To do nothing in our Christian life so as to discipline ourselves to follow Christ, to fight the good fight of faith, to do nothing is disaster. So we must do this, all of us who claim the name of Christ. And then his exhortation is we must be, we must pay the most careful attention, which applies up to this point, they haven't been doing a very good job. The attentiveness that you're now giving to the Lord's spiritual things, the writer is saying, is inadequate. And you need to grow. I hope no one says, I've arrived. In this spiritual life. I've trusted Christ. I know a little bit about the Bible. That's really enough. But if you're not paying close attention. Then you're going to find yourself. Ultimately. Leaving the Lord. Now he says in chapter 5 verse 11. That uh, there is much that he would like to say. About the gospel. And about this hope that comes to those who believe but it's difficult to explain especially because you are spiritually dull 
and don't seem to listen. Translation from the New Living Bible. You are spiritually dull. It's hard to get through. And you give every appearance of those who don't want to listen. Have you ever been there? <laughs> oh, it's amazing from this vantage point to see the people who are out there. You were hiding behind a mask, but now you can't. And you know, it's, you've got to be careful as a preacher because you can misjudge people, but sometimes it's pretty obvious. There are those who just don't want to listen. And that's between you and the Lord. In my early days, I used to call people out. I really did, because I heard a preacher do that, and I was learning how to preach, and I thought that was part of it. So if I saw someone sleeping in the back, I'd say, hey, you, back there. Yeah, you, wake up. <laughs> they never came back. It didn't work. <clears throat> but when the Spirit touches the heart, it's far more effective than me. But all of us need to wake up. Our need is not for some new revelation from God. Our need is to heed what we've already heard. It's to grab hold of the precious word of God given to us and make application to our lives. And here's the danger, lest we drift away. That's the last part of the verse. Very interesting word, to drift away. It's only found here in all the New Testament. Although the concept is found in other places. It means to slip. Uh, the idea of a ring slipping off a finger, a fact slipping out of your mind, or some topic slipping into the conversation. But it also carries the idea of drifting past the harbor that you were intending uh, to anchor in by carelessness or not taking heed of the current or the tide or the wind. You ended up drifting past. Or here's another picture. Instead of mooring your boat to the dock, it loosens with the wind and drifts out to sea. How many times is someone um, swimming in a maybe Lake Michigan, you know, on one of those blow-up things that they're laying on, and they fall asleep and wake up, you know, heading toward the middle of Lake Michigan? Oh, yes. And they have to send people to rescue them. And, and it's that idea, it's that concept. We fall asleep and we don't know what's happened to us. So both of these words can have a nautical connection. The idea of taking heed can, can also be and is also used to tie your boat to the dock. Otherwise, you may drift out. To see. If we don't anchor our lives on biblical truth, you and I will drift out to disaster. That's what's being said. If I do nothing, it will result in the loss of everything. You can't just drift along. We're told in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Hymenaeus and Alexander have made a shipwreck of their faith. You know, we're more likely to 
to drift into sin than we are to plunge into disaster? I mean, those who are believers. It's more likely for us just to day by day drift a little. Simple, small compromises that after a while take us far from the safe shore or the rock Christ Jesus. Almost imperceptibly, we find ourselves wrecking on the rocks. But it's not just that. We take others with us, for no one sins unto themselves. And in hurting our own life, we damage the lives of those around us. Right? If you're a father, that is so true. If you're a friend, that is so true. If you're a human being in any type of community, that is so true. No one sins unto themselves. Isn't it interesting? Jesus tells us the story about a shepherd who had a hundred sheep and one wandered off and Jesus went after the one who wandered. That's kind of like drifting. James talk about, talks about people wandering from the truth and Paul says some have wandered from the faith like Hymenaeus and Alexander, who end up being shipwrecked. All of this speaks of the need to be awake and to pay attention because neglect is the cause of most spiritual drifting. I just neglect to get into the Word. I just neglect to pray. I just neglect to walk and follow Christ throughout the day. Small little compromises. Turning to something very serious. And that's true of churches too. So we've got to pay attention that we don't drift away from the biblical truth that Christ is better than anything and everything. Have you ever sung the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, Tune My Heart to Sing Thy Praise? Great hymn, written by Robert Robinson, who was brought to Christ by the famous evangelist George Whitfield. Robinson became a faithful pastor and was used of God. But for some reason or another, he began to drift away and spiritual things weren't as important to him and finally he left the pastorate. To find peace of mind, he decided to travel the world and yet never really found the peace that he was looking for. And one day on his travels, he met a nice young lady and they began to spend time together Apparently she was a Christian, and one day she said to Robert, hey, I want you to read this hymn that I've been reading. And she opened the book to Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. God's in control. He tried to avoid the question, but finally confessed that he was the author. And she said to him, streams of mercy are still flowing, Robert. <laughs> the very thing you said is still true. And he came back to Christ. Uh, once we've drifted away, it's harder to get back to shore. It's better not to drift at all or to find yourself when you first start drifting to get back. And that's the admonition of this wonderful text of Scripture. It's interesting, if you think in nautical terms, chapter 6, verse 19 says, we have an anchor for the soul. It's our hope in Christ. It's Christ himself. We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll, founded, fastened to the rock that cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. So I give you the warning 
that the writer of Hebrews gave those people in that day who had been drifting and some who are beginning to reject the Lord Jesus Christ because the persecution became too hot and the struggle to walk with Christ too challenging. And they wanted to go back to Judaism. And that's why the book of Hebrews says the old way is not the better way. Jesus is superior to everything. He then transitions in verse 2 to giving us a witness. So the warning is given, and now witnesses are going to be compared. Actually, witnesses from the old covenant, under which the law was given, and witnesses to the new covenant, which is the gospel. There are three witnesses in each category. So here are the first witnesses, the former witnesses, give their appeal, verse 2. For if or since the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. Now let's stop right there. So the first witness, you might say, are angels, but we're talking about the law, the message that was given to the angels. And where did the law come from? God, right? He gave his word to the angels. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 7 and Galatians chapter 3. They were the mediators. They were used as a go-between between God and Moses. So the three witnesses are God, the law came from him, angels, they were in between, and then Moses. And Moses gave that word to the people of God. Now, the message, as we notice from chapter 1, was not final. It was partial. It was true, but not complete. Partial, but not definitive. It came from God through angels, ultimately to Moses, and he preached it. And notice in verse 2, it says, every violation and disobedience to that law received the punishment it deserved. By the way, violation defines a transgression or a breaking of the law. You violate, you, you do something you shouldn't do. Sins of commission. And the word disobedience emphasizes sins of omission. Not doing things we should do. In fact, the word disobedience comes from a Greek word that means to hear. Compounded with another word that means not to hear very well. It starts out with this idea of imperfect hearing, like someone who cannot hear. And then it turns into careless hearing, someone in, who is indifferent or inattentive. And finally ends with unwilling to hear, which is the deliberate shutting off of our ears to the voice of God. Hardening the heart, right? The conscience is sensitive, and then it gets a little dull, and then it gets very hard. That's the word for disobedience here. So those are the, the witnesses that are given. And the verse 3, how shall we escape if just punishment was given to those who ignored the message from the angels? How shall we escape if we neglect 
Such a great salvation. Now the punishment in the Old Testament was pretty severe. Just ask Aaron in the golden calf incident where thousands of people died because they built a golden calf to worship. Ask Korah and his company who disobeyed Moses, the leader, and the earth opened up and swallowed them. Or Nadab and Abihu, who were actually priests, but offered strange fire, Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 10, and God judged them immediately. If they receive just punishment, how shall we escape if we neglect this great salvation? Verse 3, which was first announced, get this, first announced by the Lord and then was confirmed to us by those who heard him. So now he's building a case from lesser to greater. If the message of the angels was important, the message of Jesus is far more important because it's final and he's greater than the angels. So now he brings forth three witnesses. And the first witness for the gospel is the Lord Jesus. The Old Testament predicts the coming of Christ and the New Testament authors look back and confirm and explain the coming of Christ and its meaning. But Jesus is the first to actualize, to personify, and to proclaim the good news. He is the embodiment of the good news. And that's why it says it was first announced by our Lord, here I am. It was incarnated, the message was, by the word made flesh. And Jesus has come, and that's the final word of God. We don't need anything else. Now, the, the rest of the New Testament is the work primarily of the apostles. They're the secondary witnesses. It was confirmed, verse 3 says, by those who heard him, primarily apostles. And it's primarily apostles or friends of apostles who give us the New Testament. The Gospels talk about the time when Jesus was here and emphasize especially his death, burial, and resurrection. And then following that in the New Testament, there is the explanation and confirmation by the apostles, especially those who were with him. This guarantees historicity. Eyewitnesses, very important. And notice the writer is putting himself in the second generation. He's talking about those who heard him. They spoke to us. Apparently, he wasn't one of them. But in John chapter 1, verse 1, remember this portion of Scripture, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which are, we've seen with our eyes, our Hands have handled the word of life. That's what we preach to you. That's the apostles. And John was writing that. Here's the message that we saw and touched and confirmed. And then thirdly, the witness comes from God. The former appeals, they were divine. It came from God, from angels, but again partial. This final appeal has God's stamp of approval all over it. It says in verse 4 that God also testified to this message by signs and wonders and miracles 
sign points to something. The wonder is the effect it has on people. And the Greek word behind the English word miracle is our word dunamis, dynamite, power. So that which only God can do. God is giving testimony to the message of the apostles with unusual signs and wonders and miracles. By the way, that almost becomes formulatic throughout the scriptures. Eleven different times, signs, wonders, miracles is mentioned. Mount Sinai with the law had its miracles, didn't it? Its signs, the smoke, the thunder, the shaking, the voice, the warnings. But now God gives his miracles. And those miracles were primarily given to the apostles as they brought in a new message that was different from the old covenant. How do we know this new message is true? How do we know that Jesus is the Messiah? How do we know that God approves of what the apostles are preaching? Look at him intervene in normal life in unusual ways. Now, I'm not saying that God can't do miracles today. He does them every day. But by the way, a definition of a miracle is something that doesn't happen all the time or it's out of the ordinary. And the signs and wonders approved of the apostles' ministry. We have the completed scriptures now. Acts 2.43 says everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs were performed by the apostles. 2 Corinthians 2.12, the marks of a true apostle include signs and wonders and miracles. So that's how they were authenticated in their ministry. God's divine approval on his son, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, on the message of the apostles, signs, wonders, miracles, are clearly given. And in verse 4, it says, gifts by the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. These gifts are not unlimited nor haphazard. They're specifically given by the Holy Spirit. But, by the way, did you notice the Trinity? God the Father confirming the message of Jesus Christ by the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And the conclusion is, if you neglect this so great salvation, and we'll talk later about how great it is, if you neglect this, there's nothing else. If you go back to the old way, that indeed is a step downward. The emphasis is more on the certainty of punishment, not the severity of punishment. There certainly is no escape. Now, the severity of the punishment is going to be mentioned like in chapter 10, verse 29, our God's a consuming fire. But we must really appreciate and constantly appropriate the message of the scriptures that exalts the person of Jesus Christ as our final message from God, therefore our Lord, to teach us what we must do to guide our lives 
And he is our savior because of his accomplishment on the cross, dying in our place and rising again. We must not miss this wake-up call. We must not ignore this warning. Back in January 2002, there was a single man who predicted a national or a natural disaster that was going to impact the lives of thousands. He was a local expert by the name of Duyidane Wafula. And he was working for 15 years without pay in the Congo at a mountain called Niraganga. We have a picture picture here of Niraganga, uh, a famous site. Uh, The sales people are telling you, come and climb in the Congo, and people love doing it because it was so amazing. Here's a picture of what looks like a bunch of college students on their way up the site. And if you look real closely in the horizon on the right side, center right of the picture, you'll see some little shacks. Here's a better picture of them. So if you get up there late, you can spend the night on the volcano that you just saw spewing a moment ago. Frankly, um, I don't think I could sleep too well. But that's what they do. Here's a picture of uh, one of the hikers just casually looking at the rim down in the crater. And that's okay. It's got to be amazing. But then here's a picture of a scientist, one of those men, um, like Wafula, who is spending his life gauging the crater. So on January 8th, smoke had been rising in the crater. Uh, Tremors had been felt. And so he warned the international community that eruption probably would take place very soon. The smoke turned into the red lava in the crater, which now was 10 times higher than it had been when it last erupted. And then finally, I think it was January 17, the mount erupted with three rivers, three rivers of lava flowing down. 14 villages destroyed, 250 people killed, 120,000 homeless. And in the next few days, the lava made its way to the town of Goma and destroyed it. The sad part about it is some never got the message of imminent danger and didn't respond. Some got the message and did respond and fled, evacuated. And others got the message of warning and choose, chose not to move. And it might have been some of those very people who went to the rim of the crater just to see how active it truly was. Just this last March, word went out, it looks like it's going to erupt again. Now, here's the thing with warnings. They happen so often that you just forget about them, right? I mean, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Pretty soon you don't believe it. But when God says, I warn you, and we're in the last days, and life is fragile, and you don't know, you have no guarantee to live tomorrow, 
I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to tell you the truth. Jesus is God, and if you reject him, there is no escape. There is no escape if you ignore or reject this great salvation that Christ has accomplished. And that's what the book of Hebrews is all about. Look how great Jesus is. How in the world could you drift away from him? Let's pray. Lord, the one who is made higher than the angels, who indeed is God and exalted infinitely above them, became lower than the angels that he might taste death for every person. And in doing so, taking on our flesh and our punishment can offer forgiveness of sins and eternal life to all who turn to him. O oh Lord, keep us from drifting away from pure and simple devotion to Jesus. And Lord, for those who are far away, may they hear the call this morning to come to Christ, whom is life indeed, who never rejects anyone who honestly comes and saves us to the uttermost so that we never can be lost or condemned. Lord, I pray that you'll speak to hearts right now as we continue in prayer. Let's just have every head bowed, every eye closed. Do business with God for a moment, will you? Are you saved? If not, trust him. If so, cling to him. Let's be in the spirit of prayer.